Welcome to the Exploring Unschooling Podcast. For countless parents, the journey to unschooling has redefined childhood and transformed their family relationships. Are you curious? Together, let's explore what living and learning looks like without school. Hello, explorers. I'm Pam Lurickia, and this is episode number 302 of the podcast. It's the 3rd of November, 2021, as I record this intro. And this week, I'm continuing my mini-series in celebration of unschooling, sharing the draft of an as-yet-unpublished book I wrote a few years ago. The book looks at unschooling through the lens of parenting, and this week, we're diving into Chapter 5, Cultivating Creativity. But before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has chosen to support the podcast through Patreon. I deeply appreciate all my patrons. Your generous support pays for the hosting and transcription and contributes to the time I spend creating new episodes each week. It's instrumental in keeping the podcast archive freely available to anyone who's curious and wants to explore the fascinating world of unschooling. If you'd like to join my community of patrons and scoop up some great rewards along the way, check out the Exploring Unschooling page at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash exploring unschooling. And now let's dive back into the book. Chapter 5, Cultivating Creativity. Creativity is the ability to create something new and valued. It may be new to the person or new to society in general. In our society, creativity is highly valued, not only with creative artists, but with creative innovators in research and business. Even creative approaches to our day-to-day lives are looked on appreciatively. But here again, much like curiosity, we have a situation where we value something in adulthood that we discourage in childhood. Maybe not in so many words, but definitely through our actions. This is going to be a bit of a habit, isn't it? We'll dive into that a bit later, but first, let's look more closely at creativity itself. We're going to focus on psychological creativity, creating something, an idea or action, that is new and of value to the individual. Creative output is most typically the result of a two-stage process. Notable exceptions are things that are created in the moment, like improvisational jazz or dance. The first stage is where we silence our inner critic, drop any preconceived constraints, and let our mind loose to come up with possibilities, no matter how seemingly remote. This is known as divergent thinking. The second stage is where we take those possibilities and sort through them, evaluating the pros and cons, maybe tweaking some and weaving together others to eventually settle on what we feel is the best choice for us moving forward. This is known as convergent thinking. These two thinking processes are the basis for the widely accepted Genplor model of creativity, which is a combination of the words generate and explore. The generative stage is the brainstorming of ideas, and the exploratory stage is the evaluation and implementation of those ideas. Those terms, generate and explore, align well with the ways we describe unschooling, don't they? Generate, brainstorming possibilities. Let's look at the first stage. How do unschooling parents nurture generative or divergent thinking? 
One way is through free and imaginative play. When our children are young, we cuddle up with them on the couch or in bed and read to them. Children's stories are often, often immerse us in imaginative worlds, giving us the opportunity to have fun with our children by exploring outlandish situations and open-ended questions. We giggle at the offbeat ideas our children come up with, smiling brightly as we watch them engrossed in the joy of thinking creatively. Then school age hits and most children are expected to adapt to a more rigid classroom environment where this kind of divergent thinking is discouraged. They're expected to do what they're told. Their actions are judged on the simple scale of right or wrong and they are graded on their ability to recall the one right answer. Children soon absorb the message that there aren't multiple solutions. There's one right answer or one right way to do something. Seeking out new and original ways of doing things is frowned upon because there is not enough time for teachers to deal with them individually. As a result, children's divergent or generative thinking skills can begin to wither. In contrast, unschooling children are immersed in a different kind of environment. Their daydreaming is met with a blanket and a snack, not an admonition to get back to work or to go do something productive. Unschooling parents see their children's ability to transport themselves to abstract situations and imagine what happens as both fun and illuminating. Even when an older child shares their big dreams, unschooling parents don't immediately interject with the realistic parameters that stand in the way of accomplishing it. Instead, they cultivate an atmosphere of openness where imagining the possibilities and trying out different ideas is as natural as breathing. Interestingly, in an essay in The Philosophy of Creativity titled The Origins of Creativity, Elizabeth Picudo and Peter Carruthers hypothesize that one of the important functions of childhood pretend play is to enhance adult creativity. Pretend play emerges spontaneously in all typical children, across all cultures, and across the board, children find it enjoyable and intrinsically rewarding. It was a fascinating essay, especially their discussion about one of the ways in which pretend play enhances creativity, the ability to bypass the obvious. They wrote, A further common factor in both pretend play and creative thought and behavior is that in each, the agent has to bypass potent, habitual, and or more obvious responses. In playing with a banana as if it were a telephone, for instance, a child has to bypass and keep bypassing the thought that it is really a banana, despite the fact that her senses will be screaming out at her that it is. She must ignore the fact that the object is really a banana and explore what opportunities are afforded by the premise that it is a telephone, all the while conscious of the fact that it is a banana. <clears throat> I love the banana story. The connection is so clear between how, when pretending a banana is a telephone, and who hasn't done that, the playing child is actively bypassing the fact that it's a banana, and how later in life, the brainstorming adult is actively bypassing the obvious, the not new, as they search their mind for new and creative possibilities. And not only do unschooling parents enthusiastically support their children's imaginative play, they support it for as long as their children are interested and engaged. There is no arbitrary age cutoff. 
My now adult daughter is a photographer, and her favorite quote for years was from Walt Disney. Every child is born blessed with a vivid imagination, but just as a muscle grows flabby with disuse, so the bright imagination of a child pales in later years if he ceases to exercise it. It connected deeply with her as a teen because she was witnessing imagination wither firsthand in her friends. Another way unschooling parents encourage divergent thinking is by helping their children explore situations from different perspectives. Because unschooling families involve their children in the day-to-day choices of living, there are times when family members have diverging needs and wants. Let's say, for example, that Maria wants to go to the park, Amanda wants to do some crafts, and mom is looking to tidy up the family room in anticipation of visitors tomorrow. Instead of the parent unilaterally deciding the path through the dilemma, unschooling families start with the premise that these divergent wishes are all valid and they work together to discover a path forward where everyone is reasonably satisfied. There is no one right answer to this situation. Maybe Amanda happily does some crafts at the table in the family room while mom tidies up and then they all go to the park. Or maybe they go to the park first and then they all play with the craft supplies and mom tidies later while the kids occupy themselves. Or maybe the kids help mom tidying up. They all go to the park and then they bring out the crafts after dinner when it's dark out. Or maybe Amanda doesn't want to go out at all so they choose to wait until the other parent gets home so that one can stay home while the other takes Maria to the park. There are so many possibilities. And then Maria has an idea. What if we bring your craft stuff to the park? Amanda thinks that sounds like fun and goes to gather her supplies. Over the years, unschooling children gain so much experience brainstorming creative possibilities, not only in pursuit of their own interests and goals, but also in finding potential paths forward through through the day-to-day challenges of living. And there's a third way in which unschooling supports the development of divergent thinking skills. Remember the web versus railroad track analogy for learning connections back when we talked about how passions are a window to the world? At school, learning is predominantly linear, curriculum delineated by subject and connected forward through each grade, step by step. With unschooling, learning is visualized more as a web of connections, a messier but more accurate representation of the world, with math bits connecting to music bits and history bits connecting to science bits. This web view is more conducive to making uncommon connections, the heart of creativity. With their web of unschooling learning connections, unschooling children typically see more potential connections in their mind from any given starting point. They can more easily make fresh connections between two seemingly unrelated points, leading to new creative ideas. Unschooling parents see this brainstorming in action with their children almost every day. My children would regularly come up with possibilities that I hadn't even considered, good ones that we often ended up choosing moving forward. As they got older, I'd ask for their ideas regarding my projects, knowing their fresh eyes would bring a valuable perspective to my ideas. Explore Making Choices The second stage of the creative process is characterized by convergent thinking, where we analyze the often diverse possibilities that we generated in the first stage. Typically, 
People relate creative thinking exclusively to the generative phase of coming up with wild ideas, but this second stage is an equally important component of the process. Now we explore and evaluate the options so we can choose which one we want to try out moving forward. It's only with this implementation that we realize the value of the new idea and gain the experience through seeing how it plays out, adding to our understanding of the world. Schools prize convergent thinking, being able to consistently narrow in on the correct answer, the answer the teacher is looking for, makes a more successful student. The challenge is that the right answer on a test is already known. Students do the work to figure out the right answer on their assignments and tests, but the only real outcome is a mark from the teacher. They don't get to see the result play out in the world where A, B, C, or D aren't the only possibilities. Students gain some skill with the basics of logical and critical thinking, but they're missing the feedback loop, which helps them gain real experience. What message are we really sending? Many children, especially in the teen years, intuit that adults believe they can't be trusted to make real decisions and choices in their lives. That their entire education is all practice because the real world is scary and they aren't yet capable of being part of it. They can accept this assumption and feel intimidated, fearing the real world, or they can rebel against it. The teen rebellion years that parents have come to fear and accept as almost a rite of passage. Yet, society is slowly becoming more aware of the infantilization of teens. We're starting to question why we have basically extended childhood through the teen years. Are they really not capable of taking care of themselves? of making choices about their days, about their future? Robert Epstein, former editor-in-chief of Psychology Today, dives deeply into this phenomenon in Teen 2.0, saving our children and families from the torment of adolescence. Focusing on the United States with his research, Epstein notes the dramatic rise in local, state, and federal laws restricting the behavior of young people under the age of 18 since the 1960s 60s, from around 50 to over 140, almost triple the number of restrictive laws. He conducted a survey that showed that teens are subjected to far more restrictions than are any of the other groups, to roughly twice as many restrictions as incarcerated felons and active duty Marines, and to more than 10 times as many as everyday adults. The problems that plague the adolescent years and even into their 20s stem from how our culture isolates them from the real world and minimizes their capabilities. Epstein argues that, among other things, teens are capable thinkers who can handle responsibility. Unschooling parents see this in action every day. We treat our children and teens as capable, supporting and helping them as they make choices. We've seen firsthand that children and teens will take on the choices and responsibilities that they feel reasonably ready for, regardless of age. Teen 2.0 is an interesting book that describes much of what unschooling parents already see in action with their teens every day. But you're probably asking yourself, what does the opportunity to make real choices have to do with creativity? Making real choices every day gives children the extensive experience with this second exploratory stage. 
Unschooling parents choose to actively give their children the opportunity to make lots of choices, to take those wild ideas they've generated, and apply their convergent thinking skills to choosing what they want to try. Rather than trying to control their choices and shape them into our vision of the, quote, perfect child, we support them as they explore their world through making choices and learning from how they unfold as they discover who they are and who they want to be. What does that support look like? Often it looks like conversations, not interrogation type ones where we drill them, subtly directing them to our perspective, but open and flowing ones that sometimes last 30 seconds and other times may go for 30 minutes or more. We follow their lead, helping them analyze the idea or proposition they are contemplating. We help them dig into the pros and cons, maybe sharing relevant personal experiences without insisting our children see things the same way we do. They are exploring their thoughts and ideas, not just absorbing ours. They are not us. Funny thing is, after a while of this, we parents come to see that their ideas aren't as wild as we first thought. Over the years, they gain lots of experience analyzing situations, weaving in considerations like their goals, their skills and strengths, the needs and wants of others, and situational constraints like time or weather or transportation. Their convergent thinking skills become very well developed. Evaluating possibilities and choosing a path forward becomes almost second nature. We see through their actions that they are incredibly capable. Another interesting observation is that our children learn the most from the process when they want to make a choice. For example, when they're younger, maybe they want to look through their t-shirts and pick one for the day, but if you offer up a bunch of choices for breakfast, they get overwhelmed, or they just don't care. They're happiest if you put some food on a plate and invite them to eat. The freedom to make their own choices doesn't mean they have to make choices. In fact, it's not helpful to insist they make choices about everything in their day. Curiously, in creativity and productivity circles, there are conversations about how making choices takes effort and energy, and how some people, such as the late Steve Jobs, for example, wear the same basic outfits and or eat the same food at meals on most days to save up their energy for the bigger choices in their lives. It's a phenomenon known as decision fatigue. Our children gain experience deciding which choices they are going to contemplate. What will they choose to focus on today? It's a great question to ponder. What else do our children learn through making lots of choices? That so many choices aren't about being right or wrong. They are bigger than that and smaller in the grand scheme of things. That choice of t-shirt today is small in the bigger picture of life, yet it can also be a big thing for them, eliciting a smile every time they notice they're wearing it or a teen's choice to attend an event across town that required transportation planning and money for a ticket. If they didn't enjoy it in the end, that doesn't mean the choice to go was bad or wrong. What they learned about their capabilities, getting there in the first place, and about the world, what the event turned out to be, and about themselves, what it was that they didn't enjoy about it, made the whole experience right in many ways. And now they have more information for the next time they're analyzing similar possibilities, honing their convergent thinking skills. 
And for parents, the more we see our children making choices and bringing their experience forward into their next choice and the next, the more comfortable we get with giving our children space to make choices. We see times when things go well, when things go unexpectedly, when they realize they've taken on more than they can handle and gratefully accept our offer to help out, or are determined to figure it out for themselves. We see that no matter how it plays out, through it all, they are learning more about the world, about themselves, and about making choices. We also see the complexity of their choices grow naturally as they get older. We also notice that it's not uncommon for our children to cycle back and forth between generation and exploration. Sometimes, as they analyze things, they see a new connection between two of the possibilities, a new way to bring them together, and they weave back to generation for a bit, looking to see what else they might come up with now that they have a deeper understanding of the situation. I have learned so much from observing my children's much more open and easygoing approach to this stage of the creative process because they aren't so focused on reaching the one right answer, which I had been so thoroughly trained to do. They don't see playing around and changing things up as a failure, but as part of the process. This exploratory stage also closely complements critical thinking, which is basically analyzing existing ideas rather than their own new ideas. But the thinking process is similar. Unschooling children do a lot of critical thinking in their days, from choosing what to do in the moment, to asking questions and discussing options, to making choices embedded in the activity at hand. Being able to critically examine and evaluate what they're being asked to do, a priceless skill at any age. It's clear how well unschooling encourages the development of creative thinking, yet it's not easy. The challenge? It takes time. The benefits of free time. Steve Jobs shared his insight about creativity in a 1996 Wired magazine interview, Steve Jobs, The Next Insanely Great Thing. He said, creativity is just connecting things. When you ask creative people how they did something, they feel a little guilty because they didn't really do it. They just saw something. It seemed obvious to them after a while. That's because they were able to connect experiences they've had and synthesize new things. And the reason they were able to do that was that they've had more experiences or they have thought more about their experiences than other people. Unfortunately, that's too rare a commodity. The creative people Jobs encountered stood out because they typically had more experiences to draw upon or they had thought more about them. In other words, they had spent more time doing and or thinking. Let's dig into the two aspects of creativity that Jobs observed. First, experiences. Because their daily lives aren't organized around a school schedule, unschooling children have the time to explore and engage with the world at large. Note that this doesn't necessarily mean that unschooling parents are constantly taking their children new places. That's not the only way to explore the world. In fact, if a child doesn't mesh reasonably well with an environment, they aren't getting much out of the experience beyond frustration. That's why following their interests is key, whether at home or out and about. They are more likely to be engaged and curious, soaking up new things. They will be having more fun and learning along the way. In other words, their experiences will be meaningful for them. 
they will be remembered. If interesting opportunities appear that happen to be further away, trips can be planned to explore them. And if at various times over the years they prefer to stay home, unschooling parents bring fun and interesting things to them. Because their goal is to help their children explore the world, unschooling parents put their focus and attention on feeding their children's interests and passions, and the number and variety of their experiences grow naturally over the years, feeding their creativity. Next, let's look at Job's second observation, processing experiences. It's a beautiful thing to see your teen take time to contemplate things, whether through hours on the swing listening to music or hours walking through the forest listening to stories or to the sounds of birds and squirrels going about their days. We've talked before about how learning is more than individual facts and skills. It's about context and figuring out how things are connected. With the freedom and time to think, unschooling children have the opportunity to explore their thoughts, to make connections, to synthesize even seemingly disparate topics and ideas into the bigger picture. In other words, to make connections beyond the obvious ones, a hallmark of creativity. Can you see how well these two aspects align with the gentler model of creativity? Building a wide range of experiences strongly supports the divergent stage by giving them more experiences to draw upon as they generate possibilities in the brainstorming phase. And processing those experiences is what the convergent stage is all about. Exploring those generated possibilities, putting them in context and weighing the pros and cons to make a creative choice. Unschooling children have time for both. What does it look like? Certainly, in the exploratory stage, it definitely doesn't always look like being busy in the conventional sense. And boy, society has bought the myth of busyness, hook, line, and sinker. Was your instinctive reaction when I mentioned hours spent listening to music on a swing or walking in the forest to think of that time as wasted? The rush for demonstrable productivity to always be doing something productive is detrimental to both creativity and learning. Facts and information are the currency of conventional society, yet this focus devalues our deeper understanding of how this information is connected. Being deeply engaged in contemplation and reflection over long periods of time can look downright lazy to the traditional eye, especially when you ask your team what they're doing and they say nothing. Well, do we really expect them to explain that they are immersed in the exploratory stage of the creative process and to promise us that it will pay dividends in the near future? No, <laughs> right? <laughs> but these repetitive and relaxing activities actually free their minds to wander, to think, maybe about nothing in particular. They are an incubator of creativity. As the mind wanders from A to B to C, maybe it catches a glimpse of a connection between A and C, one that they hadn't noticed before. Without time to ponder, those connections stay hidden. The intriguing paradox is that although we understand this downtime to percolate as an important part of the creative process, any expectations we have of it paying off are likely to actually interfere with the process by adding pressure to the mix. Not only does this time to ponder enhance our creativity, it also supports our developing self-awareness, which we'll dig into more in the next chapter. 
they are making connections not only about the world, but also about themselves. They may make connections between the fact they're feeling a bit down today and the disagreement they had with a a friend the day before. They have time to think about the disagreement and dig into it more, how it came about, to better understand. So unschooling parents don't buy into the myth of busyness as a valuable goal in and of itself. Instead, they value time and the ability to choose how to spend it, time to pursue interests and passions, time to engage in life in general, time to ponder those experiences and place them in context, building a more connected view of the world. And that's not something that's ever finished. We are always learning more. You know what else open-ended reflective time does in relation to creativity? It gives our children the opportunity to discover the intrinsic motivation behind their choices. We've seen how valuable intrinsic motivation is when it comes to learning how it helps us stay engaged in our activity, even when things get challenging. That same internal resolve helps us bypass external influences as we explore the possibilities for a given problem or situation to come up with a creative, out-of-the-box solution. In his essay, Creativity as a Virtue of Character, also from The Philosophy of Creativity, Matthew Kieran discusses the role of motivation and how creativity may also be thought of as an aspect of character rather than just a skill. Kieran posits that when creativity is governed by extrinsic rather than intrinsic motivation, someone is far less likely to be creative. He goes on to explain why. Motivation shapes attentiveness the envisaging of possibilities and openness to revision of ends as a work proceeds. If motivation is intrinsic, a subject is more likely to take risks, more likely to attend in an open-minded way to what she's done, envisage different possibilities, and be directed by thought in action toward realizing the inherent values of a given domain. When the motivation is extrinsic, someone is more likely to take the easiest and most unimaginative formulaic, and glib way of creating something. Hence, creative excellence in a given domain depends upon being motivated by the values intrinsic to it. Makes sense, doesn't it? The intrinsic motivation that comes from following their interests and passions inspires our children to learn about a topic, a domain, in more depth and breadth than someone who is extrinsically motivated to learn X and Y, but they dig no further. Basically, in Jobs' picture of creativity, an extrinsically, extrinsically motivated person would have fewer and more common experiences since everyone else was expected to learn X and Y as well, to draw upon. Sometimes thinking creatively is described as thinking outside the box. <clears throat> it's true, seeing outside the conventional box exponentially increases the view, but longer-term unschoolers have lived outside of one of the biggest boxes, school, for years. When they're brainstorming and analyzing ideas, they are looking for things that best address the issue at hand, regardless of where it lies on the spectrum of conventionality. But how do people get stuck inside the box in the first place? The cost of judgment and shame. Ken Robinson put it into words so well in his 2006 TED Talk about how schools kill creativity. Kids will take a chance. If they don't know, they'll have a go. Am I right? They're not frightened of being wrong. 
Now, I don't mean to say that being wrong is the same thing as being creative. What we do know is if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original if you're not prepared to be wrong. And by the time they get to be adults, most kids have lost that capacity. They have become frightened of being wrong. That's the box. Society trains people to fear stepping outside the box, and school is a huge part of that process. Watch a young child at play, and you'll see creativity in action. That makes sense when we think of creativity as the ability to go beyond traditional patterns and rules, the box, because young children haven't yet absorbed a lot of the established conventions, so they do things in ways that make sense to them. If they don't know how they are expected to use a toy, they'll still play with it, but may do so in unpredictable ways. In their freewheeling exploration, they learn so much, often also figuring out the object's conventional use as well because it makes sense. For example, which button to press to make something happen or in which order to place the blocks to create a pleasing shape. But if someone jumps in to show them how to use it correctly, the activity ceases to be about what if and immediately becomes about right and wrong. No, not that way, this way. Duly chastised day after day at home and at school, most children internalize the message that they aren't capable of figuring things out for themselves. They just want to be shown how to do things to be given the answer that's so much less risky. Their exploration dwindles. Their creativity atrophies. Why do we often feel an intense need to jump in and show our children the quote right way? That's a great question to ask ourselves. Why does it bother us to see our children playing with a toy the quote wrong way? Does it bother us more when other people are around? Are we worried it makes our child look unintelligent? That it's an unfavorable reflection on our parenting? Do we not have the patience to let them figure it out for themselves? I know it took a concerted effort for me to shift my perspective so that I could watch my children's exploration with curiosity instead of exasperation, occasionally offering a hand if I thought they might appreciate it. Would you like some help with that? (laughs) They rarely took me up on it. Still, one could argue they may be interested in knowing how something is conventionally used or done. And yes, that is great information to share with them. But not until they have satisfied their curiosity and freely followed the questions that came to mind. If we jump in before that, we are more likely to shut everything down. Their curiosity, their learning, and their creativity That said, if they ask for your input or help, by all means, jump in. If they ask, they're open and ready to move on, so give them a hand. The freedom and space to follow their mind as it seeks the next answer allows them to learn whatever is most meaningful to them in that moment, whether or not it plays out as expected. That's where the excitement and joy of living and learning is found. They don't know what they'll discover next. This open and questioning mindset is important for creativity. And to encourage this inquisitive attitude, unschooling parents choose to not boil down the vast majority of their children's choices to right and wrong. That value judgment is very subjective. In our day-to-day lives, there is very little that is demonstrably, quote, wrong 
Just because their shirt doesn't match their pants, it's not wrong to wear it. Just because it will take them longer to accomplish something doing it their way doesn't mean their way is wrong. Just because they added up the numbers in their head and couldn't explain their process doesn't mean their answer is wrong. There is so much to discover beyond the bounds of convention. Because unschooling families encourage their children to make choices and discover where they lead, the concept of wrong just isn't a typical part of daily life. When things don't work out as expected, it can be disappointing, but any outcome gives children more information to incorporate moving forward. More learning. In contrast, the consequences of being wrong in school are negative and strong. Embarrassment in front of their peers. Lower marks on tests and report cards. Disappointed parents. The message is loud and clear. Being wrong means that they have failed, that people will think less of them. I did well in school, and I still absorb this message deeply. I definitely avoided asking questions for years out of fear that I would expose myself as not knowing something. Less learning. Society's fascination with right and wrong has created an environment where judging others is rampant and acceptable, even actively encouraged. Children are born thinking creatively, yet when their day-to-day actions are constantly judged in order to keep them inside the conventional box, two things happen. One, it becomes very difficult for them to creatively envision things beyond those conventional rules and patterns. And two, even if they have an original idea, the thought of sharing it, of opening themselves up to the potential negative judgment of others, can leave them feeling excruciatingly exposed and vulnerable. In Daring Greatly, Brene Brown, who has spent over a decade studying vulnerability, courage, worthiness, and shame, wrote, One reason that I'm confident that shame exists in schools is simply because 85% of the men and women we interviewed for the shame research could recall a school incident from their childhood that was so shaming that it changed how they thought of themselves as learners. What makes this even more haunting is that approximately half of those recollections were what I refer to as creativity scars. The research participants could point to a specific incident where they were told or shown that they weren't good writers, artists, musicians, dancers, or something creative. This helps explain why the gremlins are so powerful when it comes to creativity and innovation. Judgment and shame are powerful tools used to train and control children to stay inside the box. Unschooling parents consciously choose to not use these tools. Rather than fostering a paralyzing fear of being wrong, we want to cultivate an attitude of let's try it and see what happens, an approach that lies at the heart of creativity. Cultivating Creativity As Steve Jobs noted, creativity is rare today. The last few decades have seen both an increased focus on curriculum and testing and a significant decrease in creativity in students. I think they are directly related. Yet the world these students are entering upon graduation is thirsting for creative thinkers and innovators. As we've already talked about, the pace of change has increased dramatically in the last few decades, meaning the ability to creatively develop new ideas and processes to quickly adapt to these changes has become practically essential. 
Given both its increasing rarity and value, it's no surprise that creativity is widely prized and respected. The unschooling lifestyle cultivates creativity by giving children the freedom to engage in it every day, the time to generate and explore ideas from the mundane to the fantastical and see how they work out. As a result, certainly in the larger unschooling community I have connected with, Children, teen, and young adult creativity is rampant. From the creative arts to creative solutions to everyday situations to creative ways to meet their needs and reach their goals, for unschooling children, creative thinking is pretty much synonymous with thinking. Let's summarize how unschooling parents cultivate creativity. They encourage their children, without judgment, to follow their interests and passions, to swirl in new and related things and expand their horizons, cultivating lots of experiences. They take the time to engage their children in everyday activities, even more experiences to draw upon. They don't criticize ideas, especially during the brainstorming stage, so kids get lots of experience with divergent thinking. They are open and available for conversations about the pros and cons of various options during the exploratory stage, freely sharing their own experiences and insights for consideration without expectation, meaning kids get lots of experience with convergent and critical thinking. They give their children lots of time and space to think and don't see low-key or repetitive activities as signs of laziness, rather of an almost meditative state where they are processing experiences and making new and creative connections, meaning time for creativity to percolate. They don't use shame as a behavior modification tool. This helps keep the fear of being wrong at bay. And they are open to changing course as new and creative possibilities arise, showing their children that situations rarely boil down to right or wrong. This way of living with children may seem alien at first, but does it seem risky? In my experience, and that of countless other unschooling parents, Children who are making choices with their own best interests in mind don't make many risky choices. Remember, risk is in the eye of the beholder. I know when we chose to take our children out of school, many of our friends and family felt that it was a very risky choice, but they didn't have all the information that we had. Sure, we felt it held some risk, but not much. Certainly no more than having them stay in a school environment where they did not thrive. Through experience, unschooling parents come to realize that if their child is making a choice that seems quite risky, chances are they, the parents, us, are missing some information. When that happens, we talk with our kids and ask questions to find out more. Not with the attitude that we think they're wrong, which sets us up as adversaries and who shares their personal thoughts with their adversary, but with the attitude that we are missing something and we're curious to find out more which sets us up as a team working together to understand something. This kind of strong and trusting relationship takes time to develop, but it's worth it. In Die Empty, Todd Henry, a writer and speaker who focuses on creativity and passion for work, describes the creative process this way. You get to play the role of curator of your own life and creative process. When you become more selective about where you spend your valuable attention, you cultivate the capacity to notice the subtleties of life and apply new observations to your work.
This needn't apply to adults only. This is what unschooling children learn through experience. Just substitute days for work. They learn about where they want to spend their valuable attention through choosing where to spend it and seeing the results. The wonderful thing is they get to experiment with and learn from these choices when the consequences are minimal. And they get to incorporate what they learn into the next choice and the next choice over years. By the time their choices have longer term impact on their lives, they are very experienced with the process. In contrast, most school children rarely get to choose where they'd like to focus their attention, nor do they have much time, free time to notice the subtleties of life or to ponder and connect their observations. They get little experience in making meaningful choices until they're adults and finally in control of their lives. But by this time, their choices can have a more significant consequence, not to mention that the fear of being wrong keeps them looking to others for answers rather than trusting themselves. What I found fascinating through observing our unschooling lives for more than a decade is how intimately curiosity, learning, and creativity are woven together. Nurturing our children's curiosity is how they discover the deep satisfaction and joy inherent in learning. How they come to realize that learning combines both the experience of engaging with the topic and the time to contemplate the significance of what they've learned in context, in turn leading to a deeper understanding of the connections that weave between things in the world. And that wealth of experiences and connections in turn directly feed creativity. The freedom of time so generously available when children aren't being marched through a curriculum also supports all three. It feeds their curiosity by allowing them to stay engaged in their activity as long as they are curious. It feeds their learning by allowing them to explore things at their own pace, staying with something as long as they're interested. And it feeds their creativity by giving them the time to ponder and make those new observations and connections. Without extrinsic motivators clouding the picture, unschooling children find intrinsic motivations that feed all three as well. The driving interests that feed their curiosity, the questions that keep them engaged in learning even when things get challenging, and the anticipation that keeps them creatively digging into possibilities. Curiosity, learning, and creativity are so intimately connected. And the unschooling lifestyle creates an environment where they not only weave together, but bolster each other to new heights. I hope you found this episode helpful on your unschooling journey. And be sure to check out the growing podcast archive. The conversations never go out of date. You can find more information about my books, the Living Joyfully Network online community, and the Childhood Redefined Unschooling Summit online course at my website, livingjoyfully.ca.